This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse number 1. We're going to read through, um, let's see, verse number, we'll read through verse number 8. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For you are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We're really going to focus on verses 4 through 8 here this morning. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews is touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, they doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Oftentimes when I'm talking with people about my faith and sharing the gospel with them and sharing them how they can have freedom in Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ has died for their sins to set them free from everything that ails them in life and how he wants to open up for them a new abundant life like nothing they have ever seen before, Oftentimes they'll have questions, which are always really good. And I just want to encourage you with this, first of all. If you're sharing your faith with somebody and they have a lot of questions, don't be put off by that. Because we want to answer their questions. We want to bring light where there's been darkness. And I always tell people that the the truth never fears questions. And so whether it be some type of religious cult that you're trying to get in or some multi-level marketing program that somebody's trying to sell you, when they begin wary, they go, hey, you're asking too many questions. Don't worry about that right now. That's always a red flag that something's not right. But when people ask questions and are really seeking, that's a healthy thing. But sometimes people will ask you the question, well, hey, if I decide to follow Jesus and I decide to be a Christian, can I still go out and get drunk on the weekends? Uh, do I have to go to church every Sunday? Do I have to read the Bible? Uh, do I have to stop, you know, doing X, Y, or Z? What do I have to do if I decide to be a Christian? And then the question becomes, now, can I be the type of Christian that I need to be if I decide to follow Jesus? Can I check all the boxes? Can I do all the stuff? And can I fulfill my obligation to follow Jesus? And then you begin to realize that the majority of people see Christianity as a list of do's and don'ts a list of thou shalt and a thou shalt nots, or a checklist of things we've got to do to actually follow Jesus, which is the exact opposite of what biblical Christianity is supposed to be. Paul lays out for us a, really a laundry list of things that he had done as a way to impress God, as a way to get God's attention or receive God's blessing, receive God's favor And Paul says at the end of the day, none of those things work at all, and they were all worthless in the sight of God. When we look at the idea of doing religious works, we need to understand, first of all, that religious works are not impressive to God whatsoever. You showed up to church this morning, God's not really impressed by that. 
You might have read your Bible every single week. The fact that you read your Bible every day this week is not necessarily impressive to God. You might have been baptized in the Jordan River. I've known people before who said, we got a chance to go to Israel and I got to be baptized in the Jordan River, the same place where Jesus Christ himself was baptized. Frankly, God's not really impressed by the fact that you were baptized in the Jordan River. I've never missed a church service. God's not impressed by that. I, I pray for at least 30 minutes before I walk out the door every single day. God is not impressed by our religious works. And so you say, well, does it not matter that I read my Bible or that I attend church or that I pray? All of those things are good things in and of themselves. But here's the thing you got to understand when it comes to God. Motives always matter to God. Always. It's not enough to do the right thing. You have to do the right thing for the right reason. Because the children of Israel were famous. Again, if you want to read through the, the Old Testament, they were famous for making a big show of their worship and killing the fatted calf and offering to God extravagant offerings, yet continuing to live in sin, continuing to live in rebellion to God. As we take a look at the last couple of weeks, Isaiah chapter 1, God says, hey, stop with all the sacrifices. Stop with the elaborate offerings. Your, your dead animals are disgusting to me. I don't want it anymore because I don't desire religious works for the sake of religious works. Here's what God does desire. God desires worship. So again, this is where motives become really important to God. If you came to church this morning because you desire to hear from God's word so that you might be changed by the preaching and teaching of God's word, God is pleased by that. If you gathered together this morning for worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ because you greatly desire to exalt the name of Jesus together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, God is pleased by that. If you showed up today because you place great importance on the body of Christ, and you want to be a thriving participant in the body of Christ and work of, that God is doing through the New Testament church, God is greatly pleased by that. But if you feel like rolling out of bed and showing up and sitting and being quiet for an hour and a half pleases God in some way, you've misunderstood who God is. If you believe that going to church is one of those things you can just check off your list of things to do and God was honored by the fact that you showed up and gave him a couple of hours out of your whole week that you have and that should be enough for God, you've misunderstood who God is and you've misunderstood the idea of worship. God doesn't want your time. He doesn't need your stuff. God desires your heart. And so it's important to understand that God desires to be worshipped. Psalm 24, verse number 7 it's a psalm of worship. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. And so it's an idea of that inanimate objects, gates and doors lift up their heads to see the awesomeness, the majesty of the king of glory is his name. He is mighty in battle, the Lord of all glory. That's the idea of worship. God desires worship. God says, I'm the object that's worthy of your worship. I'm worthy of your praise. I'm worthy of your priorities. God desires a heart of worship from us. God doesn't just require a little bit of time from you. So again, the idea that we could do religious works that would in some way please or appease God is far from the truth. God desires from every human being faith and repentance. God requires worship. He also requires 
the first act of worship that we cannot possibly do is the act of faith and repentance. We cannot appropriately worship God unless we first come to a realization that God is worthy of our worship. When God becomes a priority in our life, then his word becomes a priority in our life. And then we have to ask the question, what does God want from me? What does God expect of me? God expects worship, and that worship will lead us to faith and repentance in him. And so here's the fact of the matter. God doesn't want a bunch of religious works. He wants you to believe on his son, Jesus Christ, and be saved. He wants you to repent of your sin and be saved. He wants you to follow after him all the days of your life and be fruitful and abundant in the life that he's given us. And so the fact of the matter is this. You and I have sinned against a holy God. And our sin doesn't get covered up by our good works. In this country, we have a legal system that sometimes is just and sometimes it's not very just. But the legal system says this, if you break this law, here are the consequences for the law that you've broken. And so you don't get to steal a car and then go before a judge and say, well, judge, I know that I've stolen a car, but I also participated in a beach cleanup last weekend. Uh, I'm also part of the Big Brothers Big Sisters program, and I'm mentoring uh, younger children to not do the things that I've done. Uh, and uh, Judge, uh, I, uh, yesterday I gave uh, $20 to a friend who uh, was in a bad spot. Does that count for anything? You know what the judge is going to say? No. The good that you've done doesn't erase the bad that you've done. The fact that you've broken the law is not covered up by a handful of good works that you've done. And so the same goes for you and I and the fact that God is holy and God is just. God says, if you break my law, here are the consequences for breaking my law. You break my law, the consequences are death. That's it. Well, I'm a really good person. Great, you still have to die. And the death that it's speaking of is not simply a physical death. It's a physical and spiritual death. The spiritual death is a separation from God and hell for all of eternity. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve because we've sinned against God. You broke the law, you must die. And so God doesn't say, oh, you've broken my law, great, you need to be baptized. The wages of sin is not baptism. Oh, you've broken my law, great, come to church a whole lot. The wages of sin is really good church attendance. That's what the Bible says. You've broken my law, do a lot of really good stuff. The wages of sin is good works. No, the wages of sin is death. You must die for your sins. Unless... Someone would be willing to die for you. Something has to die. You go back to the Old Testament, God's law. When, whenever someone broke the law, they had to make things right with God by making a sacrifice, and it was always a blood sacrifice. A throat of an animal would be split. Its blood would be spilled out over the altar, therefore covering the sin that this person had committed, and that would make things right with God. And God's law while it is applied differently, hasn't changed in the fact that when you sin, something has to die. But here's the thing, you and I can die for our sins. Or I love what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus Christ has made a sacrifice once and for all. One time, Jesus Christ made a sacrifice. You see, the Old Testament sacrifices, it was a yearly sacrifice. Or every time that you would commit a certain type of sin, you'd have to give a sacrifice for that sin. Jesus made a sacrifice once and for all, the Bible says. So that now something still had to die, but it's not me, it was Jesus instead. You see, somebody has to endure the punishment of God for sin, and now it's Jesus instead of me. 
Yes, someone has to endure the wrath of God, but it's Jesus and not me. And so God in his love and mercy and compassion towards us and because of his justice can't allow our sin to go unpunished. You see, we often think that God just forgives sin like he pushes it away like it never happened. That couldn't be further from the truth. We couldn't say that a a judge would be just if he just dismissed every case that came across his desk. Can you imagine a judge says, okay, you got five counts of armed robbery. We're just going to dismiss that. Go on your way. Have a nice life. Don't do it again. We'd say, wait, where's the justice in that? You and I, even when we see things on the news of someone who's committed sexual assault or something like that, and they're given a slap on the wrist and set free, we look and we say, hey, wait, where's justice for the victim here? We look at at people who have been wrong and we say, hey, where's justice if it just gets dismissed, swept under the rug, act like it never happened, hold somebody accountable. So God couldn't be just if he just dismissed every case that came across his desk. He says, no, somebody's going to die for this. Somebody's going to pay for this. We can't just let people skate forever. So somebody has to pay. And the answer is either you pay with your own life, with your own eternity, or Jesus pays for you. And God desires from you faith that Jesus Christ was able to pay the price for you and repentance of your sin to say, I realize I've broken God's law and I don't want to do this anymore and I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to Jesus. That's repentance. You can be baptized till your fingers turn into prunes. It would never save you. Baptism never saved a single solitary person. You can come to church with perfect attendance. It's never saved anybody. You can do all the good works in the world, but it could not cover up the sin that you've committed. Somebody has to die. Will it be you or will it be Jesus? So God doesn't desire religious works for the sake of religious works. God's not pleased by that. God's not impressed by that. So a couple of years ago in the Philippines, somebody sent me a video of, uh, of the Catholics in the Philippines, and one man had taken himself and had nailed himself to a cross. And people were carrying him through the city on their shoulders. And I thought, how sad. God's not impressed by that. God is embarrassed by that. And I'll go one step further to say that God's name is blasphemed at that. You know why? Because there was one person that was nailed to a tree, and that was enough. There was one person who was worthy of their blood being shed, and that was enough. And to add to that or to recreate that or to create some type of idolatry based on that is a blasphemy to God because Jesus Christ is enough. And so we look at all the religious works that we could possibly gather together and God just kind of sits back and goes, yeah, I'm not really impressed by that. Paul gives us a resume of seven things that he did and, and he said at the end of the day, they were in the lost category, not the win category for me. So when we reduce even our Christianity, we look and say, well, we don't believe that we're working our way to heaven, but sometimes Bible-believing Christians reduce our relationship with God as a list of stuff we have to do to please God. You miss out on the whole purpose of it. And so some people ask, well, what's the idea behind the rules then? God gives us rules, first of all, for us to obey because we trust him. And secondly, his rules are there for our benefit and for our good. I remember in high school, I had friends whose parents would let them stay out till three, four, five o'clock in the morning. We'll let them stay out with friends that they didn't know. We'll let them require very little from them. I knew parents who were so foolish to say, well, we're going to let our kids drink at home because at least they're getting drunk in their bedroom. We know where they're at. 
And sometimes I would look at those and say, wow, how nice it must be to have parents who are so caring and so, uh, you know, not restrictive the way that my parents are. And I look at that now and I say, those parents were foolish. They didn't love their kids. They didn't care enough about their kids to protect them from harm. My parents gave me rules. My parents were somewhat strict, I would say. But they were strict because they loved me, because they cared about me. They put things around me and rules to keep me from harm and to keep me from harming myself. Our Father, our Heavenly Father, is like that. He has rules and guidelines, but it's not to make your life a bummer. It's to to increase your joy. It's to protect you from the harm that the world wants to offer you. When God challenges us in his word to flee sexual temptation, that word means run from it. He doesn't do that to keep us from having a good time. He does it to protect our joy. So, again, when people ask the question, well, if I follow Jesus, does that mean I can't do X? You're asking the wrong questions. Now, I do think it's important, and I'll say this. I am not a fan whatsoever. I I hate the idea of easy believism, which is the idea that, hey, one, two, three, repeat after me, and you can go to heaven. No, people need to understand what you're getting into. You're accepting Jesus Christ as Savior because you've broken God's law, and you deserve to go to hell. Otherwise, you wouldn't need a Savior. If you're a good person, then you don't need a Savior. But if you're a sinner who's broken God's law, who stands in danger of judgment, you need a Savior. But also, you need to understand that you're not just praying a prayer to get you to heaven. You're confessing the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That means he's the master. He's the boss from here on out. He calls the shots from this point forward. I don't get to make the rules anymore. Jesus makes the rules. And so always when I'm sharing Jesus with people, I don't just say, hey, would you like to go to heaven? If so, pray this prayer. No, no, no. You understand your lost condition before God and your willingness to obey his word from here on out. Now, does that mean that you can't do X once you're a Christian? You're going to have to figure that out as you walk with Jesus. And to come to him in faith and repentance, you have to say that Jesus Christ is Lord and whatever he says from here forward, I'm going to obey. And it's always funny to me when people say, after they've become a Christian, they say, well, now that I'm a Christian, can I still get drunk on this, this weekend and be, be, be saved and still go to heaven? Yeah, but why would you want to? Well, can I, can I still have sex outside of wedlock if I'm a Christian and still go to heaven? Yeah, but why would you want to? Romans chapter 6, you've been set free from these things. Why would you go back to it? It's like being let out of prison and the chains fall off and you're standing in the parking lot and you're thinking to yourself, hey, can I go back into prison? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could, but why? And so, but then many times, again, Bible-believing Christians think, well, then God's going to be impressed by my religious works. If, if, I, if I don't drink alcohol, God's impressed by that. If I don't uh, miss church, God's impressed by that. If I read my Bible seven days a week, God's impressed by that. Mm, no. Not to say those things aren't good things, but again, our works are not impressive to God. The Bible goes so far as to say this, that all of our works are as filthy rags in the sight of God. It's repugnant to God. God is, God is just like, ooh, yeah, that's not what I'm looking for. So then the question becomes, so that I don't do good stuff, so that I don't obey God? No, again, it goes back to motives, the heart behind it. And again, the context of Paul listing all these things that he did If you remember, verse number three in Philippians three, worship. We worship God in spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. And we walk in humility. We have no confidence in the flesh. So I don't smoke, I don't drink alcohol, I don't look at pornography, 
I don't lust after other women. I don't hang out with people who do those types of things. Not because I can't because I'm a Christian, because I desire to please my heavenly Father. If there's anything in my life that doesn't please Him, it's got to go. Not because I've been given a list of rules to follow, but because I want to please my Father. And so the heart behind it is so important. When we look at Paul, Paul really breaks his, his, his accolades and his accomplishments into two different categories. First of all, we see Paul's parental pedigree. This is what his family had done for him. And Paul was saying, hey, from the get-go, from the second I was born, I've been following God's law. We see, first of all, that Paul says in verse number uh, four, I believe it is, no, verse number five, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. You see, Paul's family was obedient to the law even from birth. The Levitical law said if you had a son, he had to be circumcised on the eighth day. Paul said, my parents didn't get me circumcised on the second day or the ninth day. It was the eighth day that I got circumcised. And so Paul's saying, hey, before I was ever even born, I was born into a family that was all about the law, all about doing the right stuff, all about checking off all the right boxes. I've been doing that since before I was born, Paul says. Paul goes on to say, in verse number five of the stock of Israel, you see, Paul was a Jew. He wasn't a Jewish convert. When Paul says that he's of the stock of Israel, he's basically making a claim of racial superiority. Unless you think that racism is an American problem uh, in the day in which we live, racism was a problem in the Bible. That the Jews consider themselves superior to everybody else. Gentiles were filthy animals. And then, if you were a Jew who had been married to a Gentile and had offspring children that lived in a certain area called Samaria, these people were the worst of the worst. Because you got the Jews who are mixing with filthy animals who aren't filthy animals and they're not Jews. They're just outcast, disgusting people. They're called Samaritans. And if you remember... Jesus, in John chapter uh, 4, talks with the woman at the well who is a Samaritan. And she says, wait, 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 why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. Like, you shouldn't be talking to me at all. If you remember the parable that Jesus gives of, of a guy who is destitute on the side of the road, all the religious folks walk by him, all the Jewish priests walk past him, but who stopped to help him out? It was what kind of man? A Samaritan man. And that's what makes the story, if you understand the context, make your head want to explode like hey here's a filthy disgusting outcast that everybody in society had written off but he was the one guy that took care of this guy and the question that jesus asked was who was his neighbor his neighbor was the person who everyone else would reject but he was the one who was closest to the heart of god and so again people say well jesus didn't do enough to, to tackle racism the story of the great samaritan is a takedown on racism like Again, it just shows, goes to show that Jesus says there's no race whatsoever. There's one race, the human race. And so again, we, we find ourselves here when Paul is saying, hey, if you, we want to compare pedigrees. I'm not some Gentile who chose to be a Jew. Now, there, there were those type of Jews that could, could, could convert to Judaism. For example, they were born a Gentile. and They decided, <coughs> I got something stuck in my throat. I don't have COVID. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they could say, hey, I like following Jehovah God. I like your, your types of, uh, you know, courtesies that you have and your, your, your ethnicity and your culture and stuff like that. I want to be a part of that. And they could choose to become proselytized 
Jews. They weren't really Jews, but they could choose to adopt Judaism. And they became known as proselytized Jews. Paul says, I'm not a convert. I, I am a Jew. I've always been a Jew. And when you want to talk about racial superiority, I'm at the top of the list. Paul goes on to say that he's part of the tribe of Benjamin. He's not part of some random tribe that nobody's ever heard of, like the tribe of Naphtali. No, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Like if you remember Saul, the first king of Israel, yeah, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's my people right there. And so Paul, when he's making a claim, said, I'm not from some random tribe. And here's the thing, at this point, many of the people didn't even know what tribe they were a part of because they were so far removed from Judaism. He goes, no, 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 I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I know where I came from. The only other tribe that would have ever had any more significance would be in the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah was the line of David, which would ultimately be the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So you're boasting tribes. There's only one tribe better than the tribe of Benjamin would be the tribe of Judah. So Paul's basically saying, hey, if anybody's got a reason to brag, it's me. You want to compare religious accomplishments? I'm your guy. But Paul didn't really have any part of being circumcised on the eighth day. He didn't have a choice in that. Paul didn't have uh, the ability to choose his ethnicity. He didn't have the ability to choose what tribe he was born into. So these things Paul can brag about because he's better than everybody else, but he didn't really do anything to get that. But then he goes on in his next accomplishments that he lists. This is Paul's personal pedigree. Paul was a top Jew, not just a nominal follower. You see, during this time, Jews had, had migrated all throughout the known world, throughout the Roman Empire at that point. You'd find Jews just about everywhere that you went. And like any other type of culture that migrates and moves from one place to another, a lot of people lost touch with their culture. There's probably some folks in, in this room here this morning that come from some type of Asian descent that you don't speak the language. Maybe you have Japanese, but you don't speak Japanese. These would have been Jews who basically the only thing they spoke was Greek. They didn't even know how to speak Hebrew. Paul's like, yeah, I'm not them. I am a Jew of Jews. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like, I'm in touch with my culture. I know my culture. I know the language. I know the law. I've got a reason to brag. He wasn't just a Hellenistic Jew that happened to be a Jew by ethnicity or a converted Jew. He's like, no, no, no. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, he said. Take a look at verse number five, circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. So Paul now says that he's a Pharisee, and these guys were no joke. The Bible doesn't tell us how the Pharisees started. We find no mention of the Pharisees in the Old Testament, but when we find in the Gospels, when Jesus uh, begins to do his ministry, we see Jesus begin to butt heads with the Pharisees. So we imagine sometime between the, the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, which is a, what we sometimes refer to as the 400 silent year period where God doesn't have any open revelation. We don't know a lot about uh, what God, God didn't speak during that 400 year pe- period of time. So probably sometime in that period, the Pharisees came on the scene. Now these guys, they were all about the law. What did God say? How do we keep it? How do we make sure everybody else keeps it too? Now, like most Groups like this, I imagine it probably started with really good intentions. Hey, if God said something, we should do it. Hey, if God gave us a rule to follow, we should figure out how we can follow that rule. And if God gave us a rule, what did he mean by it? What are the, what's kind of the ideas of, of what he said? What things did God probably mean, but he didn't say? How can we include that? It probably started out with really good intentions. But by the time we find Pharisees mentioned in the Bible, it's a mess. These guys are wearing white robes to prove that there's not a spot 
or a speck of anything wrong with them whatsoever. We find these guys standing in the middle of city saying, God, thank you for being so gracious to me. Thank you for being so good to me. Thank you that I'm not like this scumbag right here. At least I'm not as bad as him. Thank you that you bless me so much that I'm not a pathetic excuse for a human being like this guy. God, you're so good to me. We look at it and go, ooh, that's ugly. Yeah, it was. That when the apostles were walking through a field and they grabbed something off to eat as they went through, uh, the Pharisees came out waving the red flag going, oh, no, 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 you guys broke the law here. You guys can't pick food on the Sabbath. That's working. And you guys have broken the law. And here's Jesus leading a band of people who have no regard for the law. And can you imagine coming to Jesus to try to correct Jesus? When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, they said, oh, you can't heal on the Sabbath. That's a work that you did on the Sabbath. This guy doesn't even keep the Sabbath. My goodness. And Jesus says, if your ox fell in a ditch on the Sabbath, would you sit and look at your watch to figure out when you can actually get him out of the ditch or you just pull him out of the ditch on the Sabbath? Here's a guy who needs healing. I'm going to wait until tomorrow to heal him because I can't do it on the Sabbath. Jesus says, it doesn't even make sense. But these guys were so vigilant about the law. Get this that the rules were all that mattered to them. The rules became the thing that guided them, not the relationship. It's important to understand that if you and I are not careful, we will become Pharisees. It's not about a relationship with God. It's not about helping other people know God. It's not about helping make disciples that will be committed followers of Jesus. It's just all about the rules. And when we see other people not following the rules, we look at that and go, ah, you see that person? That person's a sinner. They need to follow Jesus like I do. And guess what? Congratulations, you become a Pharisee. Because it's not about making Jesus known to these people. It's not about showing the love of Jesus to these people. It's about being right. It's about asserting your pride. It's about making yourself look better than everybody else. And while you might not call out and say, thank the Lord that I'm not a scumbag like this guy, you're basically saying, thank the Lord I'm not a scumbag like this guy. And we become Pharisees. And I've known people that go to really good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches that have created themselves a list of rules that if you don't follow this list of rules, God doesn't love you and he's not pleased with your life. And again, here's the thing. At the end of the day, it doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin. We do. The problem is, is what Pharisees did was they studied the law to find out what it said, but then they begin to think about, well, I know this is what it says, but maybe this is what it means and this is what's implied. And when the Bible says that we shouldn't work on the Sabbath, they figured out how many steps one could take before it became work. And so on the Sabbath day, let's make sure that we count our steps because we can't go too far lest it would become work. And so I don't know how they did it. If they took bigger steps so that they could like conserve their steps or what, but they just didn't do it. And even today, if you go to... Um, to, to New York City, there's certain buildings that were, were established by people of Jewish descent that they have actually a Sabbath mode on the elevators. So that it basically skips like certain levels on certain days because less the elevator itself would cause to, to do... No, no, that's not what it is. Here's what it is. You don't have to push a button on the elevator. That's what it is. The, the Sabbath setting is you get on the elevator and it basically stops on every floor because you don't have to push a button lest it be work for you. And so you look at things like that and you go, wait a minute, I don't think that's what it meant when it says keep the Sabbath holy. Exactly. But that's what Pharisees did. And I have known well-meaning Christians that love Jesus, 
that say things like, if you own a television, you need to repent and get right with God. That your television is a golden calf that sits in the middle of your living room. And every night, you sit down before the golden calf and receive into your mind the thoughts of Satan, the thoughts of this world, and you worship that golden calf in the middle of your living room. Think about your living room. Where's your television? Is it over in the corner out of sight? No, it's in the center, the place of worship. And if you own a television, you worship an idol. Wait, hold up. I don't find that in scripture anywhere. I see where you're going with that, and it logically makes sense, but it biblically doesn't hold water. And here's the thing, I'll say this. If you don't own a television because you don't feel like it's the right thing, God bless you, I applaud that, that commitment that you have in your life. If that's right for you, I'm for you. But the moment that you place an extra biblical restriction on me and everyone else, you become a Pharisee. So we've got to be careful with that. And, and again, well-meaning Christians sometimes become Pharisees because they take their extra, extra biblical restrictions and place them on other people. Now, does everyone need standards of holiness in their life? Definitely, no doubt about it. But again, we need to be careful with that, that we don't become Pharisees. And we don't think to ourselves, God loves me because I have a lot of rules that I keep. Because religious works aren't pleasing to God. Rules, the Pharisees, if Jesus disliked anybody, it was the Pharisees. If Jesus had the most problem with people, it wasn't the sinners who realized that they needed grace. Jesus' problem was the religious people who thought they were better than everyone else. One author put it this way, to be a Pharisee was to be a member of an elite, influential, highly respected group of men who fastidiously lived to know, interpret, guard, and obey the law. You see, uh, verse number, um, my page keeps turning. Uh, Paul says in verse number five, as touching the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Here's what Paul did. What would happen was when people would convert from Judaism to Christianity, they once were part of a synagogue and were, once were part of the, the Jewish sect, and they converted to Christianity. They decided to follow Jesus. Oftentimes, the people in the synagogue and the temple that really were passionate about Judaism would go to these people who had left Judaism and say, hey, you guys should totally come back. Like, remember how you've been brought up. Remember these, these things you learned. You don't want to follow this crazy guy from Nazareth called Jesus. I mean, hello, they did put him to death. You don't really want to follow a guy like that. Come, on, come back over here with us, where you belong. And they would proselytize Christians to try to bring them back to Judaism. You know what Paul said? I didn't waste any time trying to bring people back to Judaism. I persecuted them instead. While everybody was out there with, with going, come on, buddy, come back to the synagogue with us, I was having people put to death. <laughs> you want to leave Judaism? Fine, you're going to leave in a cardboard box. You want to leave Judaism? You can leave, but we're going to take everything from you while you leave. You want to do without the synagogue? You're welcome to do without it, but your life will be miserable as a result of it. That's what Paul said. So Paul says, hey, if anybody had, was passionate about what they believed, I, I did it. Unless we think that Paul was mean-spirited, Paul really just believed in Judaism. The first five books of the Old Testament, he really believed in, in his Jewish heritage, and he was willing to fight to the death for what he held dear. And he really thought that he was right by doing it. Paul even goes so far as to say that he was consenting into the death of Stephen, the very first martyr that we find in the church. Stephen was stoned to death, and while Stephen was being stoned to death, we find Saul 
standing there holding everybody's jackets while they put him to death. Paul in Acts chapter 26 gives his testimony. Acts 26 verse number 9. I verily thought of myself, I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I began to think, what are all the things that I can do to hurt Jesus and his followers? Which thing I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, when these Christians were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme I was exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even into strange cities. Paul said this, when people were put to death for following Jesus, I continued to trash their name after they were dead. I went into the synagogues and tried to round up people who were there trying to bring people away from Judaism, take them to Christianity. I rounded them up and I had them put in prison. And here's the thing, I made them, I forced them to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. And when they decided to run for cover to somewhere else, I went and found them and the other cities they were in and continued to crank up the heat on them. He said, that's how passionate about the things of God I was. That's how much I hated Jesus because he had destroyed Judaism. He said, that's how fired up I was about religious stuff. And Paul even goes further in verse number six and says, concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul said, when it came to keeping the law, Show me where I was wrong. Just name one thing that you know of that I did that broke the law. I guarantee you couldn't find one. Now, does that mean that Paul was without sin? No, because the law didn't necessarily cover all sin. And obviously, Paul struggled with pride at some point here. So we wouldn't say that Paul would say he was sinless, but he said, hey, concerning the law, when it came to keeping God's commandments, I I can't tell you one that I broke. And when it came to holding charges against me, I guarantee you I was blameless. If you brought me up on charges, I would have got off scot-free every single time. And so Paul would say, I knew the law and I kept it. But here's one of the tricks of Satan. You see, one of the tricks of Satan is perpetuating the lie that God just wants you to do a bunch of stuff. If Satan can get you to believe that Christianity is just not sinning a whole lot, he wins. If Christianity is just showing up for church on a Sunday morning, he wins. If Christianity is just trying not to do as much bad stuff as you used to, the devil wins. And here's the thing, the devil knows that we like to feel accomplished in what we do. I know you might think I'm crazy, I'm just going to say this. There are times that I do things that are not on my to-do list. And then once I've accomplished my task that I did, I'll go back and I'll write it on my to-do list only to check it off, right? I know it's crazy. How many people have ever done that before? Raise your hand. Yes, you know why? Because it feels good. I can look back and go, ha ha, I did something, right? Mm, that felt good. Like, I'm going to think of other stuff that I've done today and write that and check it off too because it feels good to like do stuff. Imagine this. God says, I don't want you to do anything. I don't need anything from you. No, no, I want to do something. If, if you're going to give me eternal life, if you're going to forgive my sins, then I've got to do something to get it. So let me, uh, I'll receive you as Christ, but, but I'll also get baptized. And that'll make sure that I go to heaven because you do your part, I do my part. And God's just like, uh, no. Well, I, I've got to do something. I can't just receive it. How many of you are like me too? Somebody gives you a really nice gift because they want to be a blessing to you and you feel like you've got to do something in return. They give you a gift and you feel like, well, I need to give them a gift, right? You do something nice for them. 
because we, all, we don't like the feeling of having to owe somebody anything. I read a fascinating article in the Psychology Today a couple of months ago. Yes, your pastor reads the blog articles on, from Psychology Today sometimes. Uh, but it was a fascinating story because it was talking about how transactions harm relationships. And, and the idea was this. If you ask me to come over to your house and help you move your dining room table, it's super heavy. I come over and I help you move your dining room table because I'm a friend to you. Now I've extended goodwill to you based on our friendship. That when you introduce a transaction into that relationship, it destroys the goodwill. For example, I'm going to come help you move your dining room table because I'm just a good dude and I like you. So I come over, I help you move your dining room table, and when we're done, you pull out your wallet and you say, hey, here's $5. Thanks for coming and helping me today. You've immediately ruined our relationship. Because then I look at that and I go, $5? That's all that was worth to you? That's embarrassing. Like, if you're going to pay me, my, my going rate is definitely more than $5 an hour. I mean, I could more than $5 in gas driving over to your stinking house, right? That when we introduce a transaction into a relationship, it destroys the goodwill in the relationship. But here's what it found. If an act of goodwill is met with another act of goodwill from the heart, it strengthens the relationship. If I help you move your dining room table and, and you say, hey, could you stay for a bit? I'd love to order some pizza and just sit out on the back porch and just shoot the breeze with you. Are you good with that? And I say, yeah. I've brought an act of goodwill to the relationship. You've brought an act of goodwill to the relationship and it strengthens our relationship. And you say, what does that have to do with anything? Hmm. When we come to God in faith and repentance and we want to add our good works as a transaction to the relationship, it destroys everything. I met with a guy a few weeks ago, and I said, has there been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again? And he said, yes. And I said, tell me about that. And he says, well, I'm trusting in my faith in Jesus, but I believe that it wouldn't have been possible without my baptism. I said, ooh. The problem is, is now you've introduced works into a relationship with God, and it's no longer grace because it's your works. I said, do you believe that you could have been saved without your baptism? He said, no. He said, baptism is the sacrament that opens up grace and the ability to receive Jesus. Ooh, not true. Uh, not what the Bible says, because if it's of grace, it's not of works. If it's works, it's definitely not of grace. They're exclusive to one another. So I said, according to the Bible, not my estimation, according to the Bible, based on your testimony, you're not saved because you have not accepted Christ as Savior and trusting your faith alone and God's grace alone because you added your works to it. And when we add a transaction to our relationship with God, it destroys it. But if God's act of goodwill and mercy and grace that's given to me, I can receive and I'm also going to meet it with my act of goodwill, of worship and praise. Guess what that does? It strengthens our relationship. Oh, man. It's almost like everything points back to biblical truth. Yeah, exactly. Fascinating how that works. But Satan wants to tell you, you just got to do all this stuff and you'll be fine. Don't do any big sins. Little sins are okay. Big sins, bad. Don't do that and you'll be okay. You'll be fine. Go to church a whole lot, try to do some really good stuff, and you might be okay. But the fact of the matter is, that doesn't work. You see, false religion says, do all this stuff, and maybe God will be happy. Hey, go to church, get baptized, take communion, go to confession, don't miss church, don't do any big sins, and when you die... Maybe you'll make it. Maybe. 
I, I highly recommend that every Bible-believing Christian buy a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church and read it. You need to know what Catholicism teaches. I've got a copy of it. It's probably this thick. It would take you, I don't know, a couple of weeks to read through the whole thing. And you should read it with a highlighter. I got mine in my office. It's just highlighted in pieces. Because you need to understand that Catholicism is a works-based religion. Do all this stuff, and at the end of it, here's what happens. When you die, we're going to have this big, huge funeral for you, and we're going to pray that God may have mercy on your soul. Hopefully. We're going to pray that if you're in purgatory, that hopefully your time there will be short, that you will be refined, and then maybe you can make it to heaven one day because you probably haven't done enough good stuff to make it there. Well, when was your last confession? When did you last go to communion? Have you kept the mass? Have you kept the, the sacraments? Did you do enough good stuff to make it? And even outside of Catholicism, the idea of good works will get me to heaven or being a good enough person will get me to heaven. Do all this stuff. Be a good person. Don't commit any big sins. And then maybe, hopefully, possibly, God may receive you, but he may not. Hopefully you'll make it. That's why when I talk to people and I say, hey, has there ever been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior? And they say, well, I don't really know what that means. If you died today, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? Oftentimes people will answer with, huh, can anybody really be 100% sure? Yeah, absolutely. 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life even to those that believe on his name. No, not think so, hope so. You can be 100% sure that you're saved. But again, if, if I'm just trying to do enough good stuff, how will you ever know if you've done enough? That's what false religion says. Do all this stuff and then maybe God will be happy. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I've done all the work. All you have to do is receive me. Live a good life. Yeah, I already did that. Live without sin. You can't do it, but I did it. Take on the punishment of God, I already did that. Die for sin, I already did that. Jesus says, I've already done all the work. You don't have to do anything. Just trust in me. You see, even non-Christian related false religions, you take, for example, Buddhism, do enough good stuff and then maybe you won't be reincarnated or if you are reincarnated, it'll be in a better life. Do enough good stuff and then maybe you'll be reincarnated maybe as a, person who's uh, upper middle class with a better financial situation than you do, but if you didn't do enough good stuff, maybe you'll be uh, reincarnated as a slug, you know? I don't know. But do enough good stuff and maybe you'll make it, maybe you won't. Do enough good stuff and then you'll reach nirvana, then you'll never be reincarnated again, and you'll be like a, a godlike creature in, in eternity somewhere, but only if you do enough good stuff. Christianity says, <laughs> your works are worthless. You're not good enough. You will never be good enough. But Jesus was enough for everybody. He's done enough. Trust in him. Jesus says, I've done all the hard work. Put your faith in me. One author put it this way, false religion deceives the mind and consequently damns the soul. False religion says, I can do all this stuff and maybe God will be pleased, but you're deceived if you believe that. <laughs> now, is this to say that Good works aren't important. No, we'll take a look at that when we get to the book of James. I'm really excited about uh, Sunday nights starting uh, June 6th. We're going to be going through the book of James at 5 p.m. on Sunday nights. Totally different service from our Sunday morning, so I encourage you to put both on your calendar and be at both of them. And, and this is just a quick aside for you. If you really want to grow as a Christian, the more you're in church, the more that you'll grow. Guaranteed. 
If you hear the preaching of God's word twice a day instead of just once, you're going to grow. If you go from hearing God's word 50 times a year to 100 times a year, you're going to grow as a Christian, guaranteed. So I'd encourage you to put that on your calendar, plan on being a part of that. But here's the thing. If I trust in false religion as my hope, the ultimate destination for me is hell because false religion cannot save, good works cannot save, being a good person cannot save, really religious good stuff can't save. Only Jesus Christ can save. I read an article a couple of months ago that was talking about church membership and spirituality in America. And it said this, Americans' membership in houses of worship continued to decline last year, dropping below 50% for the first time in eight decades that they've been studying it. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. So this is not Christianity. This is spirituality as a whole. 47% of Americans belong to that, down from 50% in 2018 and down from 70% in 1999. And so the consensus of the article was this. In the last 22 years, Americans have found the church to be obsolete and unnecessary. And I read that, and it just hurt my heart. Because I thought to myself, this is what spirituality in America has become. This is what the church in America has become. And, and I'm not surprised by this. But all these conversations that the church is obsolete, that the church is no longer necessary, is based on either false religion or it's based on non-Bible preaching churches. Look, if, if my goal on Sunday morning is to get you hyped up and pumped up and give you uh, five leadership tips to a, a better life, that's obsolete. Look, you want five leadership tips? Read a book by John Maxwell and, and, and skip it, you know, seriously. You want to learn leadership tips? Read Zig Ziglar, you know? Read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If all you're doing is giving out leadership tips or life advice, the church is 100% obsolete, if that's all they're doing. If the church is just a place to gather to be entertained, to have really good show, really good lights, professional singers, there's better shows in town. And the church, in that case, would become obsolete. But if the church is a place founded upon the Word of God, the foundation of Jesus Christ, if the church is a place where people's lives are changed, not by behavior modification, but by the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, the church will never become obsolete. If we take the truth of God's word and continue to strongly declare it and live by it, the real deal will never be obsolete because the church has been rolled in for 2,000 years and it's going to go for 2,000 more unless Jesus comes back first. That will always be relevant. But you see, if the church is just grasping at the social justice issues of the day, if we're just going to talk about the things that are popular right now, the church is going to become less and less relevant. You know what's interesting to me is that now uh, uh, American, or I'm sorry, Asian American racism has become a big deal just in the last two months. Why wasn't it a big deal a year ago? Oh, last year Black Lives Matter, this year Asian Lives Matter. Let's stay tuned to the news to figure out whose lives matter next week. And we've got to stay with that so that we can stay relevant. No, we just believe what the Bible says. And there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. God created us all, and we're all one race, the human race. That kind of solves everything there. Let's just preach Jesus. Jesus never goes out of style. Jesus doesn't have a life cycle. He doesn't have an expiration date. And so false religion has a very short shelf life. Again, if you're trying to do religious stuff to feel better, you're going to realize at some point, this doesn't make me feel better. It makes me feel worse. 
if I'm going to go in a box every week and tell some dude all the stuff that I've done wrong this week, I'm either going to feel terrible about what I've done or I'm going to lie and make up stuff. Because this just doesn't make me feel better. It makes me feel worse. If I've got to keep all these rules and I slip up and don't make it, I'm going to feel worse about myself, not better. That's why, again, people mischaracterize Christianity and say that Christianity is a religion of guilt. Oh, you don't do this stuff, you feel guilty because you didn't do it because you're not keeping all the rules. No. You've misunderstood what Christianity then is. God doesn't want you to do stuff. He wants you to obey him. So the burning question to adherence of false religion is this, have I done enough? Again, you ask somebody, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? They'll say, I'm 98% sure. It's a chance that I couldn't, but I, I think I've done enough. At one point, will it be enough? And this even goes for so-called Christianity who give the idea that you could lose your salvation. That I can do enough bad stuff that God would kick me out of the family and then I need to come back in and be saved again. The question then is, did I get to keep my salvation or not? Did I do, do enough bad stuff to get kicked out of the family or not? And then the question is, have I done enough to make it to heaven? Was I faithful enough? Did I give enough? Did I go to church enough? Was I a good enough person? Did I do too much bad stuff? If you're asking the question, did I do enough, the biblical answer is always, no, you didn't do enough. And you never will. Because if you sin and you have, somebody has to die. That's the only thing you can do that would be enough. So, have you done enough? No, you haven't. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ is always enough. Always. If your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've got nothing to worry about. Now, does this mean that I can continue to sin? You could go back into prison, but why would you want to? Does this mean that I can just sin and sin and sin, and I can still get to go to heaven? Yeah, but you won't live a good life like that. Romans chapter 6, verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Yeah, you could, but why? Jesus Christ is enough. And so, friend, some of you today are still hanging on to guilt and shame of past sin. It's like a a, a heavy backpack, a rucksack on your shoulders that you're carrying around. Hey, let go of that. Jesus Christ paid the price. Sean, we sing sometimes, Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Hey, Jesus took my guilt and shame and he put it to death once and for all. I don't have to carry it anymore. My, my daughter and I were watching Dr. Phil this week. <laughs> Dr. Phil. And my, my daughter, Michaela, she's enamored by drama on TV. And so uh, we were watching Dr. Phil together, me and her. And uh, this girl had been in a drunk driving accident that killed both of her friends. And she talked about how she was going from high school to high school warning kids against the danger of drunk driving. And they asked her, has that helped you any? And she said, no, I just feel worse because I have to relive it every single day. And I thought to myself, yeah. And they said, have you found any peace through any of this? And she said, no, not at all. And the advice that they were giving her, well, you need to do more good stuff to make up for all the wrong that you've done and, and find peace there. And I, thought, I was thinking to myself, ah, ah, time out, time out. I got the answer to all this. I could fix this in 30 seconds if you just hear me out. But, but what does the devil tell us? Oh, you've done bad? Try to do good stuff and cover it up. But this girl realized, I can't do anything to cover it up. This doesn't go away. 
And one of the things she said, she said, all the good that I try to do will never bring these people back. Yes, yes. And guess what the answer is? Jesus and his forgiveness. That's it. But you don't want that. I got nothing else for you. A few closing thoughts this morning that are really important. First of all, understand this, that Satan is the author of all false religion. I know that sounds like a heavy statement on the, on the surface, so just hear me out. If you create a religious system that sounds kind of like Christianity, but a little bit different, and it takes the focus off of Jesus Christ and puts the focus on me, who would want to do that? Who would want to rob from God's glory to give self-glory? The devil would. Who would want to take the focus off the finished work of Christ and put us on a hamster wheel that never ends with good works? Who would do that? The devil would. And you say, well, you know, I know terrible men probably created false religion. Jesus says this, you're of your father, the devil, and he's the father of all lies. And when he speaks, he speaks in his native tongue, which is lies. And so if Satan is the father of all lies, then every false religion that exists comes from Satan. I mean, think about it this way. If we were to set up a church of Satan in Waikiki, how many people do you think would be beating the doors to get into the church of Satan this weekend? There would probably be a couple of freaks that would try to go or something like that, but the church of Satan, you know, people are going to be like, ooh, that's, that's terrible. But let's prop up a church that says, God loves you just the way you are. You don't have to change. Just be a better person. God just wants you to be a better version of your old self. Just try hard. Do better. Give God the glory. God wants you to live a good life. Go out and live it this week. Man, that's attractive. Sign me up for that. Do I have to change? No. God loves you just the way you are. Just keep doing good stuff, and you'll find that good stuff will follow you. The more positive energy you put out, the more positive energy comes back to you. Yeah, sign me up for that. Who's the author of that? The devil. The devil. Well, it sounds Christian-like. That's where Satan excels. From the very beginning, he has been a deceiver of people by modifying the word of God. That's why, again, false religion questions not only the authority of the word of God, but the authority of God as well. False religion has to add on to what God said or question what God said. And mark it down, every church that used to be a Bible-preaching church that is now slid into liberalism, when I say liberalism, I'm not talking about politics, I'm talking about being liberal in theology and their view of who God is. It all started with a compromise on the word of God, all of it. Last week, I was grieved to hear. Grieved is probably a hard word, but I was grieved. Only because this church is an influential church amongst non-believers. I think anybody who really knows the Bible wouldn't see this as an influential church. But Saddleback Church in uh, Orange County, California, pastored by Rick Warren made a decision this past week, and, and Saddleback Church has been affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention and consider themselves a Baptistic church, although Baptist is not in their name. Uh, and Rick Warren is ridiculously influential among non-believers. Uh, I don't think he holds a high view of Scripture at all. Um, I'm not going to go so far as say the guy's not a Christian. I just say that he's not a solid Bible-believing Christian, put it that way. Doesn't have good discernment, for sure. 
Saddleback Church this past week celebrated the fact that they ordained three female pastors for the first time ever in the history of their church. And they see this as a new era of ministry for them and a new uh, opportunity for women to serve in this capacity. And you look at that and you go, well, what are you? Are you some type of bigot that doesn't think women should serve in the role of a pastor? No, I'm a biblicist that says that women can't serve in the role of a pastor. First Timothy chapter 3, very first qualification of a pastor, the husband of one wife. First qualification. Titus chapter 1, repeat it again. Find elders and ordain them in every city. Elders must be the husband of one wife. First criteria, Titus chapter 1. That's not what I think, it's what the Bible says. So I didn't say we can't have women pastors. God said we can't have women pastors. If you don't like it, it's not a problem with me, it's a problem with God and his word. But here's the thing. A friend had sent me the article and said, what do you think about this? And I emailed back and I said, when scripture is no longer the authority, anything goes. If you can look at the Bible and go, well, I know Paul wrote to Timothy to ordain men as pastors. He wrote again to Titus and to ordain men as pastors. But we're living in a different age today. I mean, that was 2,000 years ago. Things were way different then than they are now. And so we now know better than what Paul was telling Timothy or things are different from times then. Careful with that. Careful. Because now this church, and again, Saddleback Church is not a bastion of religious you know, conservatism for sure. Long times ago, they made compromises on Scripture and the authority of Scripture. But they have blatantly said now, Scripture is no longer the authority for us. And the problem with that is, the problem is that when we question the authority of Scripture, we're not just questioning the authority of the Bible, we're questioning the authority of God. God's not in charge anymore. You and I are smart enough, we can figure this out. We don't need the authority of God, we don't need the authority of God's word, we'll get this figured out on our own. And God is no longer the authority. And if you trace it back to Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, which is the devil, was more subtle than any other beast of the field. And he went to Eve and he says, hath God said that you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he really say that? Questioning the authority of the word of God. And he said this, he said that we can't eat of that tree and we can't even touch it. Now, God didn't say that they couldn't touch it. He said they couldn't eat of it. Eve was a little bit confused already to begin with. And then Satan comes back with this. Oh, he doesn't want you to eat of that because the day that you do, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. And he doesn't want that. What did he do? He questioned the authority of God's word and then immediately questioned God's authority. There you go. And false religion every single time says God's word's not enough. And if you were to read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, they base their decisions and their doctrinal statement on two things. The word of God and on equal footing, the tradition of the church. Equal footing. And if the tradition of the church outweighs the word of God, the tradition of the church wins. This is the way we've always done it. By the same token, they believe that the, the Pope has the ability to speak in what's referred to as ex cathedra or from the chair. He can speak in place of Jesus Christ. You go, come on. The Pope is known as the vicar of Christ. The word vicar is where we get our word vicarious or in place of. He is able to speak with authority in place of Jesus Christ. Careful. God's already spoken. We don't need additional words from God because he's already given it to us. And so again, the, the major problem with Catholicism is the lack of the authority of God's word. 
because God's authority is placed on a back burner. Therefore, God's authority gets placed on a back burner. And so we need to be very careful with that. That's why here at Hui Kala, we warn against false teaching. We warn you to always go back to the Bible. And we warn you to find whatever you believe has to be rooted in Scripture alone. That important. Final thought. This is really important. You may say, I'm not part of a false church. I've never been a part of a false church. I'm not into false teaching. Great. Here's a final takeaway for you. God doesn't want you to do stuff. He wants your heart. If you have a 30-minute Bible reading time every single day just to prove that you could do it or to check it off your list, God's not pleased by that. But if you really want to spend time with God every day, He loves that. You might write a check for $50,000 and place it in the offering basket today because you feel like that might earn you some points with God. You know what God says? Keep it. I don't need your money. You might give some extravagant amount that is your tithe that you give to the Lord and think, huh, I bet God's pleased with that. If it wasn't given from a heart of worship, God's not pleased by it at all. You see, you could give an extravagant amount of money that wasn't done in worship. God's not pleased, but... Remember the widow who gave in the temple? She had one mite, which was less than a penny's worth. And she gave, and Jesus kind of smacked the apostles and said, hey guys, look at this. Watch this, watch this. You see her? She gave more than anybody else here gave today. You know why? Because she gave everything she had. You know what's interesting about the, the widow? She didn't give her 10% tithe. She gave 100% offering. And Jesus goes, mm, God, th that's the one. That's what it's about. She wasn't living for herself. She was living for the glory of God. She didn't give it because she thought she was making a transaction with God. She did it out of a heart of love and worship and adoration for God. You can do all the religious stuff you want and God's not pleased by it. He just wants obedience and worship and adoration. That's what he requires. So the Christian life isn't rules, regulations, and stuff. It's about my heart and God has 100% of it. And every question gets run through the filter of what does God's word say and what would please my heavenly father? everything so when it comes down to should hey should i take that job in you know new mexico it's not a matter of what's housing prices like there what's the salary look like do i get health insurance by that the questions you ask does this glorify god and is this what he would have me to do that's it and if you answer those questions everything else falls into place here's what Jesus said. I love it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Oh, put Jesus first, obey God's word, and you'll have all the stuff that you want. That's the easy part. The problem is you and I go chase stuff and then we want God's blessing. No, God says chase me and then I'll give you all the stuff. So it's a, it's a heart issue. So that's why the song we sing this morning, Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul. God doesn't want your time. He doesn't want you to sing a song to him. Look, God says this, your money's not important to me. He said, but if I was hungry, I wouldn't ask you for food. Like I own everything. You think God's broke that he's like, hey, Anthony, could you write me a check this week for like 10%? I'm running a little bit short this week. God's like, I own the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mind. I don't need anything from you. I want your heart. I want you to love me. I want you to obey me. I want it to be a delight and a joy of your life. 
That's what I want from you. I don't want church attendance out of obligation. I want your heart, and I want all of it. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, be saved today. You can't begin to worship God unless you know Him as Lord and Savior. The first act of worship that you must perform is faith and repentance. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He died for my sins. I'm putting my faith and trust in Him and receiving Him as Lord and Savior. That's the first act of worship. And then everything else gets unlocked from there. But maybe you're here today and maybe you're hanging on to that sea bag and rucksack of shame and guilt and maybe there's some sin back there that you're not ready to let, let go of. Lay it down at the feet of the cross and don't ever pick it up ever again. Maybe there's some sin that's impeding your worship of God. Let go of that today. Paul says, hey, look, you want to compare? I'm the guy. You want to do stuff to try to please God? I've done it all. But all those things were lost to me because Jesus Christ was all that mattered. And Paul gave his life and his whole heart to Jesus Christ in worship and adoration. Let's live like that this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.